Francis Schaeffer wrote a book entitled, How Shall We Then Live? I don't remember on what scripture that question was based, but I can think of two. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Consider also Romans 6, 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Isaiah addresses a similar question. He asks, How should we live in the interim between the first coming and the second coming of our Lord? The issue of how we live in light of God's promised word runs throughout the scripture. Isaiah addresses this from his particular place in redemptive history. If you look back at Isaiah chapter 59, verse 15, you will see a summary of human inability testified in chapters 56, 57, and 58. In Isaiah 59, 20, and 21, God promises salvation. And I quote, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. Notice the change in pronouns from them to you. The first part addresses the people. The second part addresses an individual, the Messiah. This becomes clear by correlating this verse with Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Isaiah 59 verses 14 through 63.6 constitute a subsection of Isaiah 55 through, 50, through 66. This morning we want to focus on two details. God's glory revealed, Isaiah chapter 60, and God's gospel realities declared, Isaiah chapter 61. In Luke 4, we see our Lord quote from Isaiah 61. He stops short. The part he quotes was fulfilled in the hearing of the people then. However, like them, we live between the times, between the first and second coming of our Lord. And Isaiah and as Isaiah and Christ address the people of their day, so the scripture addresses us. How will we respond? How will we live? Will God's promised word 
to us direct our lives today, or will it not? Let's pray. Almighty and merciful Father, we need your instruction. We need the illumination of your Spirit. We need the instruction of our Lord Jesus, your only Son. Grant us, therefore, to understand, and having understood, help us to live in in the light as you are in the light as you are the light itself as john in the revelation states may we be brought to our knees at the speaking of the word and may we hear the words of our lord do not fear we ask that your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives and in our world as that will is done in heaven grant us this we pray in the name of your only son our lord who lives and reigns forever in unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever. Amen. First of all, then, consider God's glory revealed in Isaiah chapter 60. We read about God's glory revealed. Um, Isaiah proclaims this in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. Arise, shine forth, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has arisen upon you. That's Isaiah 60, verse 1 to 3, I'm sorry. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. And nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The earth being covered in deep darkness refers to the darkness of sin that envelops the world. However, out of that will arise people from all over the world who are attracted to God's glory. We read in chapter 60, verse 19, that the Lord will be the people's glory. In Isaiah 61, verse 20, we read that the Lord is their everlasting light. God will make his people righteous that he might be glorified. Chapter 60, verse 21. When the Lord tells his people to arise and shine, he's referring analogously to an event that the people are used to. Sunrise. As one writer puts it, the thought is that as the sun appears in the morning without man's effort, but nevertheless floods his surroundings with light and dispels the darkness, so the Lord is sovereign in the bestowal of his salvation, which brings light and glory. The description of the return in verse 4 partially applies to the return of the exiles from Babylon. However, it goes beyond that. The first return from exile was partial. In this verse, the description exceeds that of the first return. We see not only the sons and daughters returning, but foreigners come with the wealth of the nations. These join in praise to God. As we follow the description in verse 6, we see people from nations that surrounded Israel. We have Midian and Ephah. and those are, those are children of Abraham. We read that in Abraham 25, 1 and 2. And I quote, Now Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. And then we read about the sons of Ishmael, and the sons of Midian were Ephah, and Ephor, and Abidah and Ada, all these were the sons of Keturah. It was uh, Ishmael was a son of was was part of the uh, um, Ephah group. In verse seven, we read of Nabioth, who and he was the son of Ishmael. 
These shall all come, and God will beautify his house with whom? With them. The reference is to Gentiles coming into the temple of God. We read about the foreigners building the walls of the city. Some refer that to Artaxerxes when he sent Nehemiah back to rebuild Jerusalem. However, the description goes beyond anything that Nehemiah did. At the time of Nehemiah, the gates were not continually opened. Neither did the wealth of the nations come into Jerusalem. In verse 13, we read that the glory of Lebanon shall come to you. And that, that's an image that comes uh, out of the book of Kings. When Solomon built the temple, he took, cedars from, he took the cedars from Lebanon. We read in verse 14 that there will be a great reversal. Instead of the people of God bowing to the feet of their enemies, their enemies will bow down at their feet. In addition, these will be these will call the city the, these people, all these people will call the city of Zion the city of the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Notice that, the Holy One of Israel. Those words come up again when we talk about Jesus in the book of Acts that the Jews killed the Holy One of Israel. So the imagery of Isaiah chapter 60 demonstrates that the glory of God will envelop Zion. Now, Zion can be understood as Jerusalem. It can also be understood as the people of God. It can be also understood spiritually as referring to the entire people of God, including the church. However, God will be glorified by people from every nation, kindred, and tongue. The description of the New Jerusalem is picked up by John in Revelation 23, or 21, verse 23 and 25. And Isaiah states that the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. God will be glorified. Isaiah 60, verse 21. You get that image of the, of the New Jerusalem in, in Revelation 21, where there's no night there. There doesn't need to be night. God is our light. Judah never experienced what Isaiah describes. Yes, they returned to the land and rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple. Herod rebuilt and made another temple, and everyone marveled at it. But in 70 AD, that temple was destroyed, and Jerusalem along with it. Therefore, we are faced with an interpretive issue here, and we need to pay attention to this. Our children need to listen, too, because the fact is they're going to face this in their life. Um, now, there are two basic interpretations, and there are variations to those. But the first view is this, that the temple will, literal, will be built, uh, rebuilt in the future with a restored Israel. And that is sort of literal understanding of the text. And Jews and many Christians await that day. Now, there is much more to say here, but that will suffice. The view goes back to the early church fathers, so it's not anything new. The second view also goes back to the early church fathers. And this view is that Isaiah is speaking about the church. For example, Clement of Rome refers to Isaiah 60, uh, verse 17, uh, verse, uh, Isaiah 60, verse 17b, to the bishops and deacons of the church. Irenaeus, um, again, again in his book Against Heresy, states, and I quote, Such presbyters does the church nourish, of whom also the prophet says, I will give thy rulers in peace and thy bishops in righteousness, of whom also the Lord did the Lord declare, Who then shall be faithful steward? 
um, good and wise, whom the Lord sets over his household to give them their meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom the Lord, um, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Uh, Paul then teaching us where one may find such, says, God hath placed in the church first apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers. And so they referred it to uh, the church at large, or to us. Well, now, it doesn't matter which interpretation, it does matter, I should say, what interpretation we take. It really does matter, because it, it, it's, a, it's, it's how we approach the scripture and how we interpret it, and that's important. However, it's not important for our purposes this morning. Uh, that's something we could talk about sometime in the future, but it's not something that's crucial for our understanding this morning. What is important for us to understand is that when Isaiah wrote these words, the Babylonian captivity had not yet occurred. The prophecy was given to give the people hope. It was also given to challenge them that the coming exile would not be permanent and that they were to live according to God's promise that that will that will that will come to pass ultimately. He would be glorified. In addition, they would share in that glory. Therefore, how should they live between the times? Would they serve God with integrity and faithfulness, or would they fall away? See, the Babylonian captivity really caused um, a shakeup in the nation. Not all of the Jews came back to Israel when, when it was over. Um, and all of them, looking ahead of it, as Isaiah said, were looking somewhat with some some somewhat of some some sort of skepticism. You know, is that really going to happen? They weren't sure, and they were not living according to God's to God's word. That's for us. We need to live according to God's word. Um, we may not understand everything. I don't claim to understand everything. As I come to the end of Isaiah, I realize how much I've actually missed. Um, and how much I actually do not understand. But the reality is, what I do understand, do I live in light of that? What I do understand about the future, I don't understand everything about the future. There's so many different views about the second coming of Christ that I can't even keep track of them. So, what am I supposed to do? I don't know, but what I do know is this. Do I live in light of the fact that Christ promised us, He promised us that He would return? Well, that's what we need to think about. You see, because we too live between the times. Christ has come. We too look forward to the consummation of God's kingdom. Indeed, we pray for the coming of that kingdom. Chapters 60 through 62 form the core of Isaiah chapter 50 through 66. And chapter 61 is the center of the center. As David Jackman states in his book, Teaching Isaiah, during the interim, I'm quoting, during the interim between the first and second coming of Christ, we are to live by God's grace to the praise of his glory. We are not to be legalistic, but we are to live bearing the fruit of a spirit-filled life. This is how we are now to live as we anticipate God's 
culminating glory. Well, that brings us to the second point that I want to bring to your attention, and that comes from Isaiah 61. God's gospel reality is declared. As we read Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2a, which was read by our Lord Jesus, we see that when he finished reading them, he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, again, there's a lot of different interpretations of that. Some think that that could just be something that's fulfilled periodically throughout history. Um, And there are different views. I don't want to get sidetracked onto them. Um, That would be something for a class maybe that we taught in Isaiah. But I want you to think about this. That it's interesting that he stopped in the first part of Isaiah 61 verse 2. Why did he do that? Well, one perspective uh, with which I agree is that he stopped because the prophecy was fulfilled up to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And you could include all of 2 as well. The remainder of the prophecy would not be fulfilled until the consummation. The remainder of the prophecy points forward. Verse 2, B and C, mentions the vengeance of God and its accompanying comfort. When did that occur? Well, if we look at the vengeance of God in terms of his vengeance against sin and, um, and his wrath against, uh, against sinful mankind, we might be able to say, well, the vengeance of God appeared when it appeared at the cross. Christ bore that vengeance, and that, that would be true. And so I can't argue that that's necessarily a wrong understanding of the verse. But verse 3 directs our attention to the giving of the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Well, when did that occur? Well, again, we could say it did occur because Christ, you know, took our sins upon the cross. And so, yes, we have the oil of gladness instead of mourning. But then verse 4 takes us somewhat further. Verse 4 mentions the building up of the ancient ruins and repair of the ruined cities, which are the devastations of many generations. Well, I don't recall that that, was ever, that that ever was fulfilled, not in any scripture passage, and definitely not in history that we know of. Um, those ancient ruined cities have not been rebuilt. Jerusalem has not been rebuilt. I mean, it's still there. You can go to it, but the temple isn't there. Um, in fact, the mosque of the, um, the Islamic mosque sits right on the temple site. So none of that's been rebuilt. And the, the cities around Jerusalem, we could say some of them have been rebuilt, some of them have not. But the devastation of many generations, they've been rebuilt? I don't think so. Verse 6 states that, that the people shall be called the priests of God and that strangers shall speak to the people of God as his ministers. Is anyone doing that today? Well, there's some Christian groups speak of the Jews as being ministers of, uh, of God, but are, are, um, are strangers speaking that way of Israel? No, I don't think so. Strangers aren't speaking that way of the church either. In fact, most of the church is seen, at least in America and in and in the in and in Europe, as not being ministers of God, but ministers of sin. That's the way most of that's the way we're all looked at. 
Now, there's more things coming out against ministers today than, than you, and, and it's horrible. The accusations of sexual impropriety and the, the, uh, um, of, the, um, uh, of money being used improperly and money being absconded from churches, that, that doesn't sound like a minister of God, does it? Not to me it doesn't. And not to other people either, especially strangers, for goodness sake. Strangers look at us somewhat askance. The church is really not in very good favor today in the eyes of strangers. We have a lot of work to do. That's why this is so important for us to understand and to answer the question, how shall we then live? Verse 9 states that all who see them, that is the people of God, shall acknowledge them, that they are the offspring, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Well, let's ask first question, would that apply to Jews today? Well, yeah, there would be some Christians who would say they're the offspring, they're an offspring of the Lord that he's blessed. I mean, we could all probably agree with that to some extent. But overall, all I see are people who want to see the state of Israel dissolved. I hear people even in, in Congress or in saying that the, the, the Jews should not be allowed to have a state. In fact, some people even want to see them all killed. And the church? Oh, <laughs> is the church saying that we're an offspring the Lord is blessed? No, I think usually they say we're the offspring of somebody that's uh, lying, robbing, and cheating, lying, cheating, and stealing. I mean, if you listen to television evangelists, I mean, who could say that about them? All they want is money. And some people think that that's all the church wants is money. When we think about these things, and we look at Isaiah chapter, we'll look to Isaiah chapter sixty. What we have to see is that we're still future oriented back then, and even now, these things have not happened. And if literal Israel is in view, it has never happened. So Isaiah is either wrong and not a prophet of God, or literal Israel is not in view, or this speaks of a of the future, for Israel literally, or for the church spiritually. I believe the latter, that is speaking about the church, the people of God. So, why proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Why do that? Notice the message. The Messiah Messiah who speaks in Isaiah 61.1 declares a message of freedom. Now, the message of freedom is a message of liberty. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10, the year of Jubilee was a message of liberty. And I quote, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Now that idea of jubilee finds its fulfillment, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He fulfills the year of Jubilee in that He has given us liberty from the guilt and penalty imposed on us by the law. Paul writes this in Romans 8, verse 2 and 4. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, 
God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the Spirit, or according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now notice the following details. First, the weakness of the law was not because the law was somehow inappropriate. Paul states that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Romans 7.12 Rather, the weakness of the law was the flesh. The law is spiritual, but we are of the flesh. Therefore, God has done what the law could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. God condemns sin, therefore, in the flesh. Thirdly, because we are in Christ, we live by the Spirit, and by the Spirit we fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And we do so because we do not walk according to the flesh. Rather, we bear the fruit of the Spirit against which there is no law. Therefore, Paul appeals to us, For you were called to freedom, liberty, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that, please, that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. Galatians 5.13-18 But we must answer another question. Isaiah 61 speaks of God's salvation in the Messiah. However, Isaiah 61 verses 1-2 through moves directly from salvation to future consummation. How, How can this be? One answer is to say that the Messiah has not yet come, which is the position of Judaism. As the early church conceived this, it refers to the church. But even here, there's a problem. I believe the answer is in this. We are to read Isaiah 61 in light of Isaiah 53. Proceeding this way, we have the Messiah cut off for the sins of his people occurring in the prophetic word prior to this. Therefore, as Jesus quotes this section of Isaiah, he only quotes the part that is pertinent to his ministry of gospel preaching, which gospel was the good news that the Messiah had to come to fulfill Isaiah 53, which is the good news of salvation. According to Isaiah 61 verse 3, the purpose of this anointed one is to produce oaks of righteousness. God's purpose in delivering his people that they may... that they will be righteous. Isaiah 53, verse 11 states this in relation to the suffering servant. And I quote, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53, 11. As one commentator puts it, to find out what gospel for the poor mean means uh, who are the poor um, 
and what exactly is the good news. We therefore have to consult Isaiah, especially chapters 40 through 50. Where the history of God with his poor embody the image of the suffering servant. And it takes place on a worldwide stage. Isaiah 53 is a key. So you see you have these core passages. Isaiah 53 is one of them, between Isaiah 40 and 55. And then you have Isaiah 56 to 6, or actually 54. Then you have Isaiah 55 to 66. And where's the core passage? The core passage is Isaiah 60 to 63 and Isaiah 61. No, Isaiah 60 to 62. And Isaiah 61 is the center of the center. Our Lord Jesus. The scripture has been fulfilled in his in the hearing of the Jews of his day. And it's been fulfilled in our hearing as well. Beloved, we find ourselves, as did Israel at the time of Isaiah and at the time of Christ, we are between the times. We have this advantage. Christ has come and fulfilled all that the prophets said about him. We live on the other side of the cross. However, we also live on this side of eternity. We have the Holy Spirit We have been raised with Christ and therefore participate in the glory that is to be revealed. However, we are still awaiting the consummation. How then shall we live? Well, Peter sums it up for us in these words, and I quote, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are to live in holy conduct, godliness, and anticipation of that coming day of God. Let's pray. Blessed Father, We give you thanks for your word. We can't claim to understand its depths, but we can understand it because you have given us the Holy Spirit. And with Scripture interpreting Scripture, we come to an understanding, maybe not fully. Maybe we have to go back and read it over again and learn. That's true. But you have given us the Holy Spirit who illuminates our thinking, shines light into our hearts, so that we can understand. If even just a portion, we can understand a portion. But then you call us, in light of understanding that portion, to live on the basis of what we have said. When John saw, when the, when the word uh, came to John in Revelation chapter 1, he fell to the ground. He was so pierced through that he couldn't stand before the word. And it's at that point that Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder and says, Do not fear. Father, may your word have the same impact on us. And may we hear those words through our Lord Jesus through the scripture, not to fear. 
Help us to walk in the light as you are in the light. Help us not to fear anything that we face. We're facing many difficult days right now. Many people out of work. A lot of questions about what's going to happen. A lot of concerns. But Father, the answers are only with you. Help us to hold on to the promises you have made to us in Christ. And help us to ever look for the day of his appearing again. And in the interim, may we glorify and enjoy you forever. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.